Yes, I have given to you everything that I have available. There is nothing that I have withheld from you. But I say unto you, the fullness of who I am can only be experienced when you commit the fullness of who you are into fellowship with me. I will reveal things about me to you that you don't yet know. I will take you deeper into that place of intimacy with me, with God. But you must yield totally and completely over to me. This does not mean that you cannot have what you call time to yourself. For I know that you have responsibilities in this life. Remember, when I walked this earth, I had responsibilities in this life. But I say unto you, when you dedicate yourself to me, as I dedicated myself unto the Father, then you will understand more about who I am to you and who you are to me. And this is so very important for these last days. You must know who you are in me and who I am to you so that you will be able to stand strong in these last days. You have seen much calamity in the world. More is coming. For this was prophesied. But again I say unto you, if you will dedicate and commit yourself unto me and spend time in that place of fellowship with me, my strength will rise up within you and you will stand strong in the last days and you will make it through and you will spend eternity with me, says the Lord. Would you please turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And this is the story of the birth of Jesus. Many years ago, I figured out, where it talks about the wise men, they were not at the birth of Jesus. They didn't show up until about two years later. I'm not teaching on that today. But I remember when I figured that out, it was like, wait a second, that means all of these nativity scenes are wrong. That means a lot of the songs that we sing are wrong. But yeah, you just kind of go with the flow and you um, let it roll, I guess. But nevertheless, here in uh, Luke chapter 2, this is the story of the birth of Jesus. And picking it up in verse 1, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, 
For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good will toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. What an incredible event. What an incredible event. Jesus is born, and as soon as he's born, these angels show up. Well, first one angel to make the announcement. This angel just shows up. Here are these shepherds. You know, they're, they're just doing their shepherd thing. And then all of a sudden, this angel shows up and tells them what's just happened. And then all these other angels, you know, the heavenly host, they show up and they begin to sing and praise and worship and so forth. And that, I just cannot imagine how that played out to them, the emotions involved. But not only that, I don't know how old these shepherds were, we can all speculate, but if they had children, or if they had children in the future, or grandchildren, you know they told that story. Hey, Grandpa, tell us a story again about the angels. Well, we were out there with the sheep, and then all of a sudden, one night, and, and then we went, and we saw the baby. We saw the Messiah. And here's what's interesting. When Grandpa starts telling this story, Jesus was out there ministering somewhere. You understand that? In fact, there is a possibility that some of those shepherds outlived Jesus. They may have been in Jerusalem on that day that Jesus was born. They may have been among the crowd to look up and see Jesus on that cross. Tears running down their faces. You know, I can't believe this. I saw Him in the manger. I saw Him. Praise God. You know, I encourage you sometimes, just when you read stories like this, just let your imagination begin to flow. Not that you're going to create new uh, Scripture, or not that your imagination is going to be you know, pinpoint accurate, but there are always things that really could be not recorded in Scripture. But I want you to see something here in this passage. In verse 10, it says, The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. This verse 10 is the very first time in the entire Bible when the word joy is associated with Jesus on earth. 
This is it, right here. And notice what they say. I bring you good tidings of great joy. I bring you good tidings of great joy. Now, when we read this, you know, we think, um, yes, you know, great joy. Praise God. You know, the Savior is born. Messiah is born. Christ is born. Yes, great joy. I'm not saying that's wrong. But there's more to this than maybe what we've understood. I'm going to help you see this. This word joy, it comes from the uh, Greek word kara, or kara, which is like a root word to the word charismatic. But kara, that's what this word joy is. It means cheerfulness, it means delight, it means calm delight, it means gladness, it means um, exceeding gladness or exceeding joy, joyful, joyfully, joyfulness, joyous, um, you know, you think, wow, you know, happy time. Okay, you're not wrong. But that's what this word kara means. In other words, it, there is no negative emotion associated with this word. So another way to say this is when this word and what it means is present, there is no depression. There's no anguish. There's no pick-your-own-negative emotion. Now think about this. In the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. That's a prophecy. And so he says here, I bring you great tidings, good tidings of great joy. So this word joy, you know, it, it means, it's describing cheerfulness and, and all this other now turn over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Now the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians. Um, well, he wrote this letter to the church at Philippi. We refer to it as, you know, Philippians. Now Philippi was a, uh, was a major city in that particular time. Uh, Philippi was named after Philip, Philip of Macedon, and he was the father of Alexander the Great. Now, uh, Philippi became, well, it was essentially captured and brought under Roman control by Caesar Augustus. Now, when we just read a few moments ago about the birth of Jesus, it says it came to pass in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. All right, So Caesar Augustus was the one who brought Philippi under Roman control. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to them. And again, this city of um, Philippi was a major player as far as cities are concerned back in that day. Now, beginning in Philippians um, chapter 1, when he's writing this, historians tell us that the Apostle Paul had been arrested and that he was in prison when he wrote this letter. But he wasn't in just any prison. He was in Rome, 
And he was in what is referred to as the Mamertine prison, which is a part of the Tullian keep. Now, to uh, keep this short, at this, this building where this prison was located, the whole concept of imprisonment in Rome was different from what we understand imprisonment here. It was kind of weird because under Roman law, nobody was sent to prison. They were just held until trial. So you could be held for a long time until your trial, but you weren't in prison. That, it, I know it's, it's a technicality. So you were in prison, but not according to Roman law. Well, anyway, this place uh, where Paul was kept, there was a building, then there was like a, um, like a floor underneath it, and then there was a lower floor. Call it the sub-basement, something like that. Now, this sub-basement, and again, people refer to it as the Tullian Keep or the Mamertine Prison, this sub-basement was actually a part of the Roman sewer system. So that when there was a, um, let's say that they had a, a rainy season, and there was so much rain, the sewers were starting to overflow. Well, that overflow would go into that lower level there at the Mamertine prison. So if you happened to be in there at the time of the overflow, then you're going to be chained up. And usually what they did was chain the person with their, their arms above their head. So you weren't hanging by your wrists. Your feet were on the floor, but your arms were above you. Now, you and I both know if you keep your arms above your head long enough, they start going numb. Well, they have you down there chained like this, and then if it's a really bad rainy season, really bad, and the sewer starts overflowing, and that stuff starts coming in, the sewage is flowing into where you are. And according to historians, the stench was absolutely horrid. Because during those times, you know, you're in human waste. Well, and everything else. It's just gross, absolutely gross and disgusting. In fact, uh, many of you know the minister, Rick Renner, he talked about being in Rome, and while he was there one time, he, he said, I began to smell this horrid stench. And he asked the tour guide, what is that? And the tour guy said, well, that's coming from over here, the Tullian Keep. And he said, that sewage, just that grotesqueness, it soaked into the stone walls so much that even to this day, when the temperature and humidity is just right, you can still kind of smell that odor coming out of the walls. That is horrible. Well, see, this is where Paul was being kept. Now, whether or not he was, you know, shoulder deep in sewage or knee deep or whatever, the bottom line is he was in this place. Now, we don't know for sure exactly, uh, or at least what I was reading, I don't know exactly how long he was kept in there. Historians tell us that Peter was kept there one time for nine months. So here's Paul in that particular situation. Whether he was in sewage or not, the bottom line was, he could smell it. And there probably, if it wasn't up to his knees, I mean, if it wasn't like that at that moment, there probably was like leftover stuff on the floor. You know what I'm talking about? You know? So bottom line is horrifically gross. And that, in a way, that kind of helps us understand why 
he um, <laughs> he mentioned in chapter three, verse eight: "Yea, doubtless I count all things, but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ." When he was writing that, he may have been looking at a pile of it and thought, "You know what? That's the good. That's the word right there. I count it all dung." All right, we go back here to chapter 1 in Philippians. Now that you understand the setting. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, the servants of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which, uh, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, Always and every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. Now this word joy is the same word kara. The same word that was used over there in Luke, where the angel said, I bring you good tidings of great joy. It's the exact same word. But now if you jump over, same chapter, but go to verse 18. What then, notwithstanding, Every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. This word rejoice, it, is, uh, it comes from the uh, Greek word akairo, which is a relative to the word kara. Now this word kairo, it means, and I'm, gonna, I'm shortening all of these definitions, sometimes they get wordy. What it means is, in essence, to respond with joy. Now, the word joy that he used in verse over here in verse 4, and what we read back over there in Luke, the word joy is an inner condition. The word rejoice or rejoicing is a choice on the part of the individual. So joy is something that is in you. Rejoicing is something that you do. So when he says in verse 18, I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice, he's revealing a choice on his part to rejoice out of joy. Now considering where he was, you have to have something good happening to rejoice. I mean, think about it. What if this was a rainy season and he was waist deep in, you know, overflow sewage? And he's talking about rejoicing. And he's talking about joy. (laughs) How many of us could do that? I mean, there have been times I've been around, like, animal leftovers, and I start gagging. The odor, it's just gross. And some of you, and you know, have you ever changed diapers? Sometimes those diapers, yeah, make your eyes water. I mean, even if, you, you don't even have to be the diaper changer if you're just in the same room. So here's Paul, and he's in this situation. He's talking about joy. He's talking about rejoicing. Well, look over in chapter 3. In verse 1, he says, Finally, brethren... Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you 
it is safe. So he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And herein we get an idea of how he was able to rejoice. He wasn't saying, he wasn't saying, I rejoice because of where I am. He was saying, rejoice in the Lord. He's the one that really should have been receiving the encouragement, but he's encouraging them. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And notice he says, to write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous. But for you it is safe. In other words, it's not that big of a deal for me. In my conditions, it's not that big of a deal for me to encourage you to rejoice. Well, why? I mean, Paul, seriously? No, I can do that because you know what? I'm rejoicing. I just told you back over there in chapter 1. You know, I'm rejoicing. And so I'm encouraging you. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now look in verse 2. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. That is a major declaration. Because this is really like a faith statement that he's making to them. He's saying, you know, we're the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit. Okay, we're the Christians. We're the born again. And rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. He's declaring that about himself, but he's also declaring that about them really as a faith statement. Because he's not there with them. It's like I'm encouraging you to do what I believe you're doing and what I confess that you're doing. No confidence in the flesh. See that? No confidence in the flesh. Well, then where is your confidence? Right here. We worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. We have no confidence in the flesh, but we do have confidence in God and in Christ Jesus. We have no confidence in the flesh. Now, in order for us to rejoice the way that He is talking here, we have to come to that place of having no confidence in the flesh. Now, I understand. You have to have confidence when you do your job. Okay, I get that. But when it comes... Remember, the Apostle Paul wrote in another place, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. He wasn't saying I can do all things through the flesh, through my effort. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I have no confidence in the flesh. I've encountered a lot of pastors over the years. Listening to them talk, it appears as though their confidence is in the flesh. And so many of these um, conferences and seminars that are geared toward church growth, a lot of it, really, it's let us tell you what you can do in the flesh to build your church, to grow your church. You need to have this program and that program. Many years ago, you know, everybody, all the churches had to have buses. And it's not wrong to have a bus. However, when your confidence is in the flesh, you're going to do 
what you think you need to do, and you're going to be listening to all these other voices out there about what it takes to make your church grow. And when you begin to act on that, then really, you know the verse that talks about except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain, which, you know, build it. You're laboring in vain, even though on the outside it may look like you're doing a great thing. He says here, no confidence in the flesh. None. No confidence in the flesh. A total reliance on God. And he says, we worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now look over in, um, well in fact, if you look at chapter 1, I want, to, want you to see something here. He says in verse, chapter 1, verse 25, And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and, notice that next phrase, joy of faith. Joy of faith. Now what in the world is he talking about? Well, when you go back over to chapter 3, and you see this, we are the circumcision, verse 3, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. I have no confidence in the flesh because my faith is in Christ Jesus. This is where my joy lies. This is the source of my joy. I rejoice in faith. I rejoice in Christ Jesus. Then in chapter 4, turn over to chapter 4 and take a look at what he writes. We pick this up and I'll pick it up in verse 4. Look at this. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. <laughs> the mistake we make is reading this and associating it with nothing more than a human emotion. Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Then he says, Let your moderation be known unto all men. That moderation, I guess one way to say that would be a calm, steady life. Let you, in other words, you don't get upset over every little thing that happens. This is what he was talking about, no confidence in the flesh. When your confidence is in the flesh, you can't have this moderation he's talking about. be impossible. He says, let your moderation be known unto all men. When people see you, your day-to-day -day life, your Monday through Saturday living, they will take note of, and he uses the word moderation, but he's talking about you don't have any confidence in the flesh, your confidence is in Christ, so therefore, you're not going to get all bent out of shape because of this, because of that. Let your moderation be known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. He's there for you. So you can have this moderation, this moderate lifestyle that he would be describing. Then he says in verse 6, be careful, worried, anxious, upset, anxiety. Be careful for nothing, nothing. Nothing. How many times do we sit down and we're wondering, thinking, speaking out loud, I don't know how in the world we're going to deal with this. I don't know how in the world. Okay? He says, 
be careful, worried, anxious, troubled, upset for nothing. So when we're sitting around talking about, I don't know what we're going to do, our confidence is in the flesh. It's not in Him. And if it's not in Him, then we can't rejoice. Well, he says, be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. This is not thanksgiving for the bad stuff. This is the thanks, it's a thanksgiving because God is at hand. It's a thanksgiving. Yeah, maybe, remember where Paul is when he's writing this. He's basically testifying, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm doing where I am. I'm not worried about anything, even though I'm in this place. And not only that, but in everything, by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, I'm letting my request be made known unto God. Why? God is at hand. But I'm not, my confidence is not in the flesh. My confidence is not in my flesh and what I can do. And my confidence is not in the flesh of others, what they can do. You get this? Let me tell you something. As a pastor, it can be very easy to put confidence in the flesh of what other people can do. Here's what I mean. You have a lot of people, I mean, I'm telling you, if you want to experience this firsthand, start pastoring. People who tell you they'll do this and they'll do that, and then they don't do it. And you can allow yourself to get all worked up over that because they, they are not keeping their word. Well, yeah, you should be disappointed because when somebody gives your word, their word, they're supposed to keep it. You know, when you say you'll do, you should do. And then if you find out for some reason you can't, at least communicate why you can't. I can't tell you how many times people have said, I'll do, and so forth, and then they don't, and they don't even say why they didn't. And then they act like nothing happened. And you know, you scratch back, sit back, scratch your head and think, this is weird. You gave your word, and you know you said you would do, and you didn't, and you act like nothing happened. And many times, and I'm not up here bellyaching, I'm just telling you how it is. Many times, a lot of this, like over the years now, I've had to come in behind and do what they didn't. Or somebody else comes, has to come in behind and do what they didn't. He says, no confidence in the flesh. Be careful for nothing. In everything, prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God and the peace of God which passes all understanding, shall keep your heart. That word keep, it's a, Greek, it's a Greek word that the image is a highly armed soldier standing guard, letting nothing get pie. He says, The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Shall keep your heart and mind. This means you'll have stability of thought. I've been around Christians who have, uh, something's happened, and mentally, it's like they go into panic mode. You can't reason with somebody like that. You, you flat out can't. And in some cases, sometimes those people actually have to be physically restrained because they've gone off the deep end, and they're acting weird. And I, this could be 12-year-olds, it could be 112-year-olds. When that happens, 
I'm telling you, <laughs> it can be a challenge. You, you just, I mean, they just, man, they flip out. They, they act out of the flesh because that's where their confidence was. And so he says here, look, the peace of God which passes all understanding shall stand guard over your heart and your mind. How? Through Christ Jesus. See that? No confidence in the flesh. I'm telling you right now, I've shared this before, but I'm telling you right now, there are a lot of Christians out there going to therapy. They should not be going to therapy. They should be doing what this says right here. Well, Brother Martin, but you don't understand. No, what I'm telling you is, you, wait a minute, hold on. Are you telling me that I don't understand what the Word of God is saying here? Are you telling me that you don't understand what I'm pointing out about the Word of God? I mean, where are we coming from here? Because when, when you're a Christian and you feel like you have to go to therapy, what you're doing is you're trusting in the flesh. Now, I, I know, man, all kinds of people give me all kinds of stuff about this. Some of the posts that I've read on social media by Christians, thinking, man, you need this passage right here big time. Because if God's peace, he says here, the peace that passes all understanding, it's a peace that cannot be defined by human terms. If God's peace is standing guard like a soldier over your heart and your mind, that Peace keeps the fear, worry, anxiety, etc., and so forth. It keeps it out. Every now and then, over the years, I've received email, text, phone calls from people. What do we do? What do we do? I just don't know. It's just beyond. It's just like... And I'm, and, I mean, I'll do my part. But I'm thinking, come on, man. I thought you were further along in God than this. At least, that's the image that you portray. Obviously, you're not where you think you are in God. See, you have to understand, stuff happens. You get the phone call in the middle of the night, wakes you up, and the news on the other end is horrible. Okay, you better have this at work in your life right here, or you're going to be making some wrong decisions. You, listen, you cannot make a God-wisdom decision when you are in mental turmoil you'll make decisions that will seem right to you and they're not and no matter what anybody says to you you're not going to receive it in fact you may even turn on them for not helping i thought you loved me i thought you would support me i thought it's like hold on i am i'm telling you look if you're born again this passage right here that we're reading guys this is life to us well he says, the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. And then look what he says here in verse 8. He says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Do you see verse 8? is something you should do, not something that will be done for you. But notice, the starting point for all of this is verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, 
And again I say rejoice. So if I do verse 4, then guess what? Verse 5, 6, 7, and 8 will start to fall into place in my life. The simplicity of what we read in verse 4, it actually can tend to make us think it's not that big of a deal. But if I am, verse 4, first told, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, and I begin to read verse 5, 6, 7, but I do not associate verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 with verse 4, then I can expect verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 to just happen absent of verse 4, the rejoicing. I hope you're understanding this. Now, notice in this what we've read here that the Apostle Paul has written. He does not tell the people to rejoice. What he tells them is, rejoice in faith. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in Christ Jesus. See that? So, anybody can rejoice. Just go to the football game, be 100,000 people there, and 85,000 of them are going to be rejoicing. 15,000 are going to be crying because their team just got whooped on. You get this? So he could have just said, rejoice. It's like, okay, whoo, we're rejoicing. He added something to it. He clarified. This is not just rejoicing that is dependent upon the flesh. This is rejoicing in faith. Rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoice in in the Lord always. Rejoice in Christ Jesus. He adds that to clarify, this is not a normal way of rejoicing the way the world would describe it. It's something, now listen to this, something that is exclusive to Christians. That's part of why he talks about the peace that passes all understanding. Lost people cannot have this. It's impossible. Oh, you can have lost people walking in a whole lot of emotional, mental stability with what seems to be a whole lot of peace in their life. You cannot have what he's describing here if you are not born again. It is impossible. Because what he's describing here, it all begins with rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice in the Lord now, with all of this in mind, and knowing this association between rejoicing being a choice and joy being an inner condition, turn over, uh, we may come back to Philippians here, I, I don't know, but turn over to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And in John chapter 15, Pick it up in verse pick it up in verse eight. Jesus says, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. 
If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. See that? Now, when he says, these things have I spoken unto you, we really should not isolate verses 8, 9, and 10 only. Think of it another way. God has spoken to us and given to us his word. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see, we see a lot of you know, red letters, the words of Jesus. And he says, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy, remember, joy is an inner condition, that my joy might remain in you. See that? His joy in us so that our joy might be full. So if his joy is in me, and he talks about my joy being full, then what is my joy? My joy is his joy in me. He's not talking about an earthly, worldly, dependent upon the flesh joy that anybody on earth can have. He's talking about, say it another way, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and become your joy and my joy in you as your joy would be full. What does it mean to have joy that is full? What it means is that joy in you is so full to the point that rejoicing in the Lord always is not a big deal. Because you're rejoicing out of the joy of the Lord that is in you. Now look over in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, verse 13, Jesus, this is his prayer, before he's arrested and uh, crucified, and he says, John 17, verse 13, And now I come to thee, Father God, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. See that? So he's talking about, call it like this, an impartation of what is in him unto us. His joy being fulfilled in us. Now, if you look, we will come back here to uh, John chapter 17. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 and see more about this. In Hebrews chapter 12, Just go to verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember what Paul was writing in Philippians. And I'm going to paraphrase big time. I'm here in all this gunk. I'm hearing all this residue. I'm here breathing this stuff in. 
day in and day out. My hands are chained above me, and they're only lowered so every so many days. And yet, I am existing in the joy of the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord always. And this is why I'm telling you to rejoice. There was no joy set before Paul in the Tullian keep. <laughs> you understand that? There was no joy. There, there was nothing but gross. And yet, he's talking about being in this place of joy, and he's talking about rejoicing, rejoicing in the Lord. Well, then we get here, in this passage right here, Hebrews 12, 2, and it says that Jesus, he's the author and the finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, there was nothing of joy associated with the cross. You understand that? And there was nothing of joy associated with what led up to the cross. It's one thing to be arrested, but it is another thing to be beaten without mercy by the Roman soldiers. It's another thing to have your beard plucked out. It's another thing to have people beat you, hit you, punch you. It's another thing to have people spit on you. It's another thing to have, you know, be at the cross, but then to have the nails driven into your hands. In other words, there's no joy in this. He, he knows what's coming. He knows he's going to be crucified. The cross before him was not the joy. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross for the joy to be fulfilled. And you think, well, what in the world? I don't understand. Well, let me explain this. Jesus knew the prophecies about him. Now, he was the Son of God. And he understood the Old Testament prophecies that talked about what he was going to accomplish and what was going to be the result. If you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember that? He's up there with Peter, James, and John. And he begins glowing white, and there's this cloud. And Moses and Elijah appeared to him. So Moses, Jesus, and Elijah are there. And Scripture says, they were talking to him about what he would accomplish in Jerusalem through his, his crucifixion. So, Jesus knew what was coming, but he also understood that God had made these statements. Remember, Jesus is baptized, comes up out of the water. God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus never committed sin. So he was still pleasing unto the Father. But Jesus had the prophecies in Scripture that God would not leave his soul in hell, but would raise him up on the third day. Now granted, I know I'm paraphrasing from prophecies all throughout the Old Testament. But Jesus knew this. But not only that, why did Jesus come here? He came here so that humanity would have the opportunity to be restored in fellowship and relationship unto God. The joy that was set before Jesus was multifold. In other words, here are all these prophecies 
about what's going to happen and, and the bad stuff, that's no fun. But I'm looking beyond the bad stuff and I see that I'm going to be resurrected. I see that I will be resurrected King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I see I will be resurrected and restored to my place as, you know, third person of the Godhead. I see in Scripture that my throne will last forever. But not only that, I see in Scripture that the blood I shed will be the blood that will cleanse humanity of their sin, purge them of the sin nature, so they can be restored back to a spiritual Genesis chapter 1 condition with Almighty God. I see that. So therefore, I'll go to the cross. I'll do what nobody else in all of history has been required to do. I will do it for the joy that is set before me. Now, look over in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And begin reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to His abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly, there it is, see that? Ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ." Whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though, ye now, though, ye, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. See that? You rejoice with joy unspeakable. The joy is what's inside. The, joy, the rejoicing is the choice I make based on the joy that is on inside. Now notice this. In verse 8, he says, You haven't seen Jesus, but you love him. And though you don't see him right now, yet believing, yet for the joy that is set before you, he says, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Why is it joy unspeakable? Because it's not based on anything associated with the flesh. It is based totally and completely on a relationship with God as his child. Now notice this. We can do verse 8 because of, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to His abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and an inheritance undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, you're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. This is the joy that is set before us. 
Because he says, even though right now in this world, you may be facing a cross of temptation, a cross of trouble, a cross of trial, if you just go back and read verses 3, 4, and 5, that is a joy that will be set before you, knowing what you have now, knowing what is coming for you in all of eternity, and because of that, you can rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Praise God! Praise God! Now look back over in John chapter 17. We pick this up in verse 20, where Jesus is praying. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Okay, that's us. We're the downline on this. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Now, he's ta- do you see in here he's talking about And I'll summarize. Because of what I'm doing here on earth, once I've accomplished the cross and the resurrection, at that point, they then, if they believe in me and put their faith in me, they then will be one in us, but we will be in them. I will be in them. Remember what Jesus talked about, that my joy may be in them and their joy would be fulfilled. This right here is how His joy gets in us. Because the moment that we get born again, the moment that we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we experience that spiritual birth, it isn't only that the born-again life is birthed in us, But the joy that was in Him, that was in the Father, is now birthed in us. That's why when Paul is writing these things, and he says, rejoice in the Lord. How can you do that? Because you're in the Lord. You're in Him and He is in you. Rejoice in the Lord because you're in the Lord and you can rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in faith because that's where you are. That is your existence. You're in Him and He is in you. His joy is in you and that's why you can rejoice in the Lord. You, you don't have to worry about rejoicing in the world. Rejoice in the Lord. That's why you don't have to have any confidence in the flesh whatsoever because God is always there. He's in you. Rejoice in the Lord because you're in the Lord. Praise God. Praise God. We talk about Jesus being born on Christmas Day. The angel showing up and he says, I bring you good tidings of great joy. It wasn't simply a matter of rejoice. Because finally, finally, the Messiah you've been waiting for has arrived. He was also talking about a great joy that was now going to be available to all humanity 
within them. Great joy has been born this day in the city of David, in Bethlehem, and you will find that joy wrapped in swaddling clothes in that manger. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Well, why don't you go ahead and stand. Joyfully stand. Hallelujah. Praise God. Father. No, I can't, I can't do that just yet. If you happen to be in this room, or you happen to be watching this, and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to understand the joy that we've been reading about in Scripture the joy that God's been sharing this morning, that joy is only found in Jesus Christ. Now you can have a lot of earthly joy because of a lot of earthly circumstances. I understand that. But this kind of joy, this is a supernatural joy. It's the kind of joy that saw Jesus to the cross, through the three days in hell, and into His resurrection. That same joy is available to all of us, but only by virtue of accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's not simply a matter of repenting of sin and and being born again and receiving His life, but you're also receiving that joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. Praise God. So right now, if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you want to, I'm going to lead in a prayer to be born again, to receive His life, but also in the process, you'll be receiving that joy. So if that's you, then I encourage you, just repeat this prayer after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, and I cannot change myself. I need Your help. So right now, Lord Jesus, I invite you into my life. I ask you to please wash me in your blood. Cleanse me of my old sin nature. Remove it from me. And please give to me that born again life you've promised. I receive it from you, Jesus. I also receive that joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. I say, may it guard my heart and mind through Christ Jesus with that peace that passes all understanding. I also ask you, Jesus, please baptize me in the Holy Spirit just like you promised in your word. Holy Spirit, I receive you and I ask you to give unto me all of your gifts mentioned in Scripture including what the Bible mentions as praying in tongues. I received that gift from you, and I ask you to help me from this day forward to live for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God. Well, if you just prayed that, I'm joyful for you. (laughs) Praise the Lord, you're born again. You have God's life in you, but also you have the joy of the Lord in you right now. And in the presence of the Lord, there is joy unspeakable and full of glory. And I encourage you, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. 
No matter what the circumstances, rejoice because you are now in the Lord. Praise God.